And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Father, this evening we're thankful to you for your grace. What a joy, again, to be in this place. Thank you for this good crowd that's gathered on this Monday evening. And I pray now tonight that you might bless the preaching of your word. God, without you, we can do nothing. So help us tonight, God. We need your help. Speak with every heart. We'll give you the glory for what's accomplished in this place this evening. In Christ's name, amen. By my estimation, Elijah is one of the great men of the Scriptures. Can I just say something to you this evening? We need heroes. Can we say that again? We need heroes. We need people that we can follow their example. And not just characters from the Word of God, not just men and women from the pages of this book, but we need men and women that we can follow their example in this life. But now we have to be careful about something. We have to remember that they are only human. Even when we set someone up as our hero, we must remember that they are only human. And, and may we be careful that we never put any human so high up on a pedestal that if they fall, we fall. We need heroes, but we need to recognize that oftentimes heroes have to be in play also. And sometimes they're going to stumble, and sometimes they're going to fall. But when they do, we need to recognize that God is working in their life. And maybe we need to take an example for what happened to them and ask God that it never happened to us. But we need heroes. This evening, I want you to come back with me, and I want us to think about this man Elijah. Again, a great man of God. As a matter of fact, I have, have entitled this message, Elijah, a true man of God. Now, I want to show you this evening why I believe that's so. Let's look at his life as it's laid out for us here in the Scriptures. First of all, let's back up a chapter to chapter number 18. And let's talk for a minute, a minute in the life of Elijah about the victory on Mount Carmel. Now, we don't have time to go back and rehearse the whole story. I hope you're familiar with it. But this is probably the crowning moment in the life of this man, Elijah. Elijah has gone up on Mount Carmel, and now he is engaged in a combat, if you will, in, in, a, in, a, in almost a warfare with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. The Bible said there were 450 prophets of Baal. There were 400 prophets of the grove that met with him. And you remember how Elijah challenged them and told them to offer their sacrifice and call upon Baal? May I say this was a high point in the life of this man Elijah, and he was feeling it. He knew that God was in that place. He knew that God was doing some magnificent things. Elijah was feeling it so much in verse number 27 of chapter 18 that he began to mock the prophets of Baal. Now, please understand, I'm not in favor of mocking the opposition in competition. But I do know this. If you're going to do it, you better be sure you're going to win. Years ago when I was in high school, there was a school near where we were at. And when you would play them in their home gym, if, if they got ahead in the game and it was near the end, they would begin to shout, start chanting together, start the bus, start the bus. Of course, you know what that meant. It's time to go home. You, you've lost time to go home. I'll never forget one game when they started that chant with about a minute left. Their team was up probably seven or eight points. But something just, the wheels came off, if you will, at the last minute. And all of a sudden, the, the, the visiting team began to press, and their team began to throw the ball away, and the next thing you know, the game got out of hand. 
As a matter of fact, it came down to just like a second on the clock. They were already up by three points, and one of their players stepped the line to shoot a free throw. If he hit that, the game was over. There was no way they could catch up. Walked up that free throw line, cool as a cucumber, bounced the ball a couple times, shot it, and went right straight to the hoop. When it did, the coach or the visiting team jumped to his feet, turned around and faced the crowd, took the keys out of his pocket, which I'm sure he later regretted, and threw them up in the crowd and said, you start the bus. We're going to stay here to celebrate. If you're going to mock the other team, you better be sure that you're going to win the game. I'm here to tell you, Elijah was sure about what was going on. He was on a, a religious high, if you want to put it that way. And not only, not only did he defeat the prophets of Baal, but Elijah prayed, and it rained. And then the Bible tells us that he went in the strength of the Lord, and he actually outran Ahab from Mount Carmel back to Jezreel. Now, if I can read a map right, that's somewhere around 17 or 20 miles that he went. And he was an old man. Elijah was probably over 90. And he outran Ahab in a chariot and got back to Jezreel before he did. Someone made the comment that this was kind of like church camp on steroids. Uh, this, is kind of, this is kind of like that high point of your... Here was Elijah. And again, he was on the mountaintop. And he was feeling it. He had the right to feel it. This was not just an emotional uh, high that he worked up. God was working. God was real. God was in his life. God was doing great things. And Elijah knew it. But then we go from the victory on Mount Carmel... Or we move into chapter number 19. Chapter number 19, we're introduced to the panic of Jezreel in the first three verses. When Ahab finally got to Jezreel, there in verse number 1, he told Jezebel what had happened. And of course, when he told Jezebel what had happened, that God had intervened and he had licked up the sacrifice and that the prophets of Baal were dead, of course, Ahab and Jezebel repented and turned to God. Didn't they? No, that's not what happened at all. You see, they did not repent of their sin as a result of what God had done. Please listen to what I'm going to say. People reject God in spite of evidence, not because of it. The Bible records for us in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 5, we talk about those after the flood. It said, for they are, they willingly are ignorant of this truth. It's not that the evidence was there to prove to them one thing or the other. They made a choice and they willingly rejected God in spite of the truth. Now let's be honest. You and I are always thinking if God would just do something spectacular, why doesn't He do something spectacular? Wouldn't that cause people to repent and turn to Him? I, I remember years ago uh, we had a service when I was pastoring in Kentucky and a young man came forward in that service and I dealt with him for a long time. We went back to my office even after the service and talked, and he just kept saying, if God is real, why doesn't God just do something? Why doesn't God do something spectacular? Why doesn't God just open up the heaven? And I tried to remind him that God done that on occasion. And the result was that people didn't turn to him. Elijah, or excuse me, Ahab and Jezebel didn't turn to God as a result of what the Lord did on Mount Carmel. The nation of Israel as a whole did not turn to God as a result of what happened on Mount Carmel. May I remind you in the New Testament, do you remember the story of the rich man Lazarus? You remember the story when uh, the, 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 the rich man cried out to Father Abraham and said, you know, send Lazarus to testify my five brothers that they, they not come to this terrible place of torment? You know what God, what the, uh, Father Abraham said to him? He said, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither would they believe the one rose from the dead. What he was saying is this, if they reject the word of God, if they reject the simple 
teachings of the Word of God. They're not going to believe, even though something spectacular is done. Please understand this. The faith that is the result of God doing something spectacular, now listen to what I'm going to say, is the faith that the devil promotes. Remember up on the Mount of Temptation when Jesus was being tempted that 40 days and the devil came? Remember what he said? He said, if thou be the Son of God, change these stones into bread. You do something, and I'll believe. But that's not the way faith works. Faith is based on the principles and the truths of the Word of God. Faith is not based upon the fact, you do it, and I'll believe. That's the devil's kind of faith. The biblical faith is confident obedience to God in spite of circumstances or in spite of consequences. I remind you again tonight, that spectacular, we're always wanting something to happen in the church, something spectacular. And that, that's a wonderful thing if it does. But that sort of thing rarely turns people from their sin. What turns people from their sin is a confident obedience to the Word of God and just believing what God says in His Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know, some have questioned why Jezebel didn't just kill uh, uh, Elijah that first night. Why did she send him a warning? Well, I don't know. I don't know what was going on in her mind. I can't tell you what she was thinking. But I can tell you what I think she was thinking. Is that all right? You don't mind if I make a little assumption here? I think Jezebel was smart enough to know this. She was smart enough to know that if she martyred Elijah, that this could turn this whole thing around. She didn't want to kill him. Now listen. She didn't want to kill him. She wanted to humiliate him. Can I just say something to you tonight? I don't think the devil is necessarily interested in killing God's children. Oh, he might want to do so if he can do it in a humiliating fashion. If he can cause you and I to lose our, our faith and our sight of God and, and, and maybe take our own life or, or in some way do it in a humiliating fashion, then he might be in favor of that. But the devil doesn't want to kill you. The devil wants to humiliate you. The devil wants to embarrass you. The devil wants you to cause you to lose your testimony. He wants you to, to be humiliated to where people will no longer have confidence in your testimony, have confidence in your witness for Christ. And so that's why she didn't kill Jezebel or kill Elijah that first night. She just wanted to humiliate him. She wanted him to lose his confidence in God. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. When he got word that Jezebel was after him, that she was coming for him, the Bible said that in the midst of his greatest the greatest demonstration of the power of God. He had just come down off Mount Carmel. And again, like I said, buddy, he was riding a religious high. He was riding, a, a, the hand of God was upon him. But that one woman came along and threatened his life. And Elijah lost sight of everything. Well, let's not be so hard on him, all right? How many times have you and I had God do something spectacular in our lives? And we turned right around and something went wrong. And we lost sight of who God was. Something like COVID comes along. And all of a sudden we lose sight that there's a God in heaven. We can get pain. Maybe some trial in our life. Some heartache comes along. Some, something that we don't understand why it happened. Why did this have to be this way? And we lose sight of who God is. I'm simply saying tonight that all the good that it could have been accomplished by Elijah's stand on Mount Carmel was lost. When in that one moment he just lost sight of who God was. 
But let's not be too hard on it because you and I have been in that same place. So let's move from the victory on Mount Carmel and talking about the panic at Jezreel. Let's move to verse 4 through verse number 8 and let's talk a little bit about the breakdown in the wilderness. Let's talk about the breakdown in the wilderness. In verse number 4, the Bible says, but he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness. Elijah was alone. By the way, this is by his choice. He left his servant behind. When they, when they got down to, to, to Beersheba, he left his servant there. And he went by himself farther out of the wilderness. He was not only alone, he was exhausted, he was drained, and he was defeated. You ever been there? You ever been in that place when you were just alone? You were exhausted? You were defeated? You were drained? You didn't think you had anything left? That's where Elijah was at. And I'll be honest with you tonight, I'm not going to make fun of him because of it. I'm not going to mock him because of what happened in his life because unfortunately there have been too many times in my life I've been in that same situation. But it's interesting to me that in verse number 4 that the one thing that he asked God to do was one thing that God never did. Did you notice what happened? He prayed and said, Lord, it's enough. I want to die. Take my life. I want to die. Don't you find it interesting that he's only one of two men that never did die? Him and, him and he are one of two men that never did die. Aren't you glad tonight for a lot of prayers that you've prayed that God never answered? I think there have been a lot of prayers in my life that I've prayed to God that I'm so thankful He never answered. Because they were foolish prayers. They were prayers that were prayed in a moment of heartache. Prayers that were prayed in a moment of despair. Prayers that were prayed in a time of great fear. And I'm so thankful God didn't answer. God didn't answer Elijah's prayer. Never did answer. Elijah never died. But there in the, in the wilderness, God encouraged him is what he did. He didn't, he didn't rail on him. He encouraged him. He didn't chastise him. He encouraged him. The Bible reminds us that he, in verse uh, number 5, that as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, the angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, baking on coals, and a cruise of water in his head. And he'd eat and drink, laying him down again. God came to him. God gave him rest. Are you listening? Sometimes that's exactly what you and I need in it when we're going through a time of great trial. When we're going through times of great, great struggle in our life. When we've been on the mountaintop and now we've come down because something's happened in our life. Sometimes all we need is just rest. We just need to get away from things a little bit. He was hungry. God fed him. He gave him rest. And then the Bible tells us that he woke him up that second time and he sent him on a journey. And that's where we pick up the story even further in verse 9 down to verse number 21 where the Bible talks about his renewal on Mount Horeb. The Bible says in verse number 9 that he received strength from that meat and went 40 days and 40 nights under Horeb, the Mount of God. Now again, if you look at a map, it's not a 40-day journey from where he was in Beersheba, the wilderness, down to Mount Horeb. But it took him 40 days to get there. Now he outran Ahab and got back to Jezreel before Ahab did. But this time he was operating God's time. 40. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, I am not a real student of numerology in the scriptures. I, I, I'm not a real proponent. And I think sometimes people get a little carried away trying to make all the numbers do fit certain ways. But I don't think you can miss the fact that 40 is the number of trial and, 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 and temptation in the scriptures. You remember that Israel was 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was 40 days upon the mountain and fasting before the devil came and tempted him. And here, this man. Elijah was 40 days making the Mount Horeb. By the way, Mount Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given. God was taking him back to the place of the beginning. He was taking him back where it all started. 
There on Mount Horeb, God began to do some things in his life. He was preparing. Forty days God had to work in his life. Forty days God had to speak with him before he ever got to Mount Horeb. Now listen, here are some things that happened when he got on Mount Horeb. First of all, God reminded him of his calling. In verse number 9, and then again in verse number 13, he asked Elijah this question. Elijah, what doest thou here? What doest thou here? Now please understand something. I think the emphasis in that statement may have been on that last word, here. Elijah, what doest thou here? This was not the place of God's calling in his life. Both times, Elijah gave the same explanation. He said, well, Lord, I, in verse number 10, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy promise with the sword. I, even I only, left, and they seek my life to take it away. He gave that same excuse both times. God asked him again, what, Elijah, what are you doing here? Please understand this. I believe that Mount Horeb was where Elijah needed to be at that moment. But that was not where God wanted him to be. That was not his place of calling his life. And sometimes, and please understand what I'm saying, sometimes you and I need to be where we are at the moment because that's where God wants us for that moment. But that's not where he wants us to stay. We may be in the place of despair. We may be in the place of even fear or whatever. That's not where God wants us to stay. We may need to be there at that moment because God is going to do something in our life. God is going to teach us a lesson. God is going to instruct us. But that's not where God wants us to stay. God reminded him of his calling. Let me give you a second thing. He also showed him his power. As we read down through verse 11 and verse number 12, we find out that first of all, God sent three great evidences of his power. He sent a tornado-like wind that, 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 that tore up the, the, the countryside. He sent an earthquake. And he sent a raging fire. But God did not choose to manifest himself in either. Not in the great wind, not in the earthquake, not in the raging fire. That wasn't the way he was going to speak to Elijah. By the way, let's face it. That's the way you and I would like for God to manifest himself. Isn't it? We would like for God to manifest himself in, a, in an unmistakable way. Uh, in, in some great majestic way, God would manifest Himself when we're going through a trial, when we're going through the heartache, when we're going through the disappointment, when we're going through the time that we failed God. Wouldn't we like Him to come along and just rend the mountainside or rage with a fire? That way we couldn't mistake that it was God. But the Bible reports for us that God wasn't in all the excitement and all the drama. Elijah had been on Mount Carmel. He'd seen all the excitement and the drama. The Bible reports for us in verse number... 12. That after the earthquake of fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God spoke to Elijah in that still, small voice. Now please listen to what I'm saying. Again, you and I would like for God to be in the earthquake. We'd like for God to be in the raging wind. We'd like for God to be in the fire. But to hear the still small voice requires that you and I get quiet, get silent, and we listen closely. When someone's speaking in that still small voice, we have to listen, don't we? We have to listen. And that's where God wanted to get Elijah. After all that had taken place in his life, after all that had gone on in his life, God wanted to calm him down. Bring him to the place where Elijah would just relax and listen to the still, 
small boys. God began to give him instructions. And he showed him verse number 18. That he was not alone. Verse number 18, he said, Yet have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all of these which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which have not kissed him. There were 7,000. Elijah had already said, I'm the only one left. Nobody else loves God. You ever feel that way? I have. Nobody else wants to serve the Lord but me. I'm the only one. God said, no, there's 7,000. By the way, listen, I don't think they were the product of what happened on Mount Carmel. I think those 7,000 were probably the product of the ministry of a man by the name of Obadiah. Remember who Obadiah was? He was the prophet that came and had been with, with Ahab. Now, he wasn't all he should have been. And there were some things about his life that should, but he was faithful. He saved those hundred prophets uh, from being executed by Jezebel. He loved the Lord. His ministry was just a still, small one. And by the way, even the ministry of Elijah before this, I'm not sure those 7,000 were the product of Mount Carmel. I think they were the product of just that consistent, consistent, consistent love of God. Let me give you a word of encouragement. The work that God's given you to do here in this town. Oh, I know, I know everyone sitting in this room right now would, would like to see God just blow into this place and, and thousands of people come to know the Lord. That would be a wonderful thing. But that's probably not going to happen. You know what's going to happen? As you, each individual, are just faithful to God, faithful to God, faithful to God, and continue to be a witness for Him wherever you are, and continue to, to encourage people and invite people and try to be there for people when they're in a place of need. You're going to find God doing some marvelous, wonderful things. One day you're going to look around and realize there's a lot of people that God's helped through this church. A lot of people that God's helped and God's saved and God's changed lives in the ministry of this church. That nothing spectacular about it, but it's just being faithful every single day. Elijah, there's 7,000 people out there just like you that love the Lord. And they're out there because of a consistent, consistent, day by day ministry of loving the Lord, serving God, and putting Him first. And then He showed Elijah, and I like this, that His work wasn't done. Did you notice that? In verse number 7, 15 through verse 17, and then again down in verse 19 through verse 21, He, each time that, that God intended to be a worn out prophet, now I want you to hear this. Each time that God had come and helped it, whether it was back before he went to Mount Horeb or after he went to Mount Horeb, each time that God tended to him, he not only took care of his physical needs, but he turned him around and showed him there's still a work to be done. He sent him from, from the, 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 the wilderness down to Mount Horeb, and once he got down to Mount Horeb, he said, now here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and I need you to begin to anoint some people to take the places of the, of the king of Syria. I need you to anoint Elisha to take your place as a prophet of God. I need to get busy and do the work of God. Folks, listen. When you and I find ourselves discouraged and defeated, and it happens. It happens all our life. When we find ourselves down like Elijah was down here, may God help us take a step back. But realize God's not done with us. God's not through with us. God has something He wants to do in our lives. And all we need to do is just listen to that still small voice. And He'll tell us. He'll give us instructions. He'll give us direction. And we need to just get busy and get back to doing what God wants us to do. You want to know the easiest way to get over depression? Get busy and do something for somebody else. Yeah. Now, now, please believe me when I say this. I believe 
very strongly in the reality of clinical depression. I do. My family has experienced it. My, my wife's side of the family, there's been different ones that have battled and had to have medical care because of, of true clinical depression. I believe in it. But I know sometimes that as God's children, what happens to us is we get discouraged and we get defeated. And the devil comes along and kind of cows us down like he did Elijah and we begin to back off. The best thing we can do, get the rest we need, get a little something to eat, and then get busy and do something for God. Get busy and get back in the fight. That's exactly what God did for Elijah. He said, I want you to get back out there and I want you to get busy. I've got work for you to do. I'm simply saying to you this evening, Elijah was a true man of God. You know why I call him a true man of God? Because Elijah wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. But he was willing to deal with his sin and he was willing to get back in the fight when God began to deal with him. That's what makes a true man or a woman of God. It's not that we're perfect. If, if, that's, if, if God only used perfect people, let's be honest, he'd be able to use in business, but there'd be none of us to be that are usable. But God is in the business of taking broken vessels and bringing, putting them back together and turning them around and putting them right back in the fight again. And that's what God has for me, and that's what God has for you this evening. Elijah, a true man of God. Let's God for prayer.